Good morning, Village Church. Uh, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as always, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, this week, we're continuing through a summer series that we're calling Prayers of the Bible. Um, and each week, we're going to look at a different prayer from the Bible and, and see what instruction and what, what goodness it has for us um, today. And uh, this, this, this morning, we're looking at Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of repentance. This is a familiar psalm to a lot of us. It's a very personal psalm to a lot of us. It's been with us while we are in the middle of some very, very difficult times. Times when our hearts are at their most vulnerable. Times when we feel the guilt and the pain and the shame and the sorrow of our sin most acutely. It's in those times where the psalm has come to our rescue. It gives voice to those feelings of anguish that come when we're confronted by our sin. And this psalm is a very popular psalm, partly because of the scandalous nature of its backstory. It's a familiar story to a lot of us, right? This psalm was written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba. And for those that aren't familiar, the story could be found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It's spring and the Israelites are at war. This time, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And one late afternoon, David finds himself walking on his roof, and he spots a beautiful woman bathing. He asks his servants about her, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's Uriah's wife. That's Bathsheba. David sends for her, brings her into his home, and he sleeps with her. He thinks he got away with it until he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. And that's a problem because Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is away at war. So if Bathsheba is found to be pregnant, everyone will know that there's something shady afoot. And so the cover-up begins. David calls Uriah back home from battle into the palace. And he asks him how, how things are going on the front lines. And after Uriah is done giving David a report, he tells him to go home to his wife and to wash his feet which I guess is like the Hebrew version of go home and put on some Marvin Gaye and give your wife a back massage and just see what happens. <laughs> he, he, he's hoping Uriah will go home and sleep with Bathsheba and everyone will assume that the child that she is pregnant with is his. But Uriah refuses to go home. In his mind, it's not right for him to go home and spend time with his wife while his brothers and his colleagues are out at war. So he stays with David. So David tries another approach. He has him over for dinner. He gets him drunk and then sends him home, hoping that one thing would lead to another and David's sin would be covered. But still nothing. Uriah is a good and faithful man that stayed on the couch while his with his servants instead of being home with his wife. David is desperate. So he writes a letter to one of the commanders in the army, Joab, telling him to put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the front line. And when the fighting started, have everyone fall back and draw back, leaving Uriah without support. And he sends this letter to Joab by Uriah. And Uriah hands this letter to Joab, not realizing that he just handed over his own death sentence. And everything goes according to David's plan, and Uriah is killed in battle. Bathsheba mourns, and as soon as she's done, David takes her to be his wife. The idea was to do it all so quickly that the infidelity would be hidden. Later, 
Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him a story. He says, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man had flocks and herds, and the poor man had one little lamb. But he loved that lamb, and he treated it well. And one day, the rich man had guests that were coming. But instead of taking from his own flock, instead of taking from his own herd to feed the guests, he stole the lamb from the poor man, killed it, cooked it, and fed it to the guests. Hearing this, David is enraged, and he yells, this man deserves to die, to which Nathan snaps back, you're the man. And as we're reading this, we're half expecting Netflix to ask you if you want to watch the next episode. Because the whole thing plays out like some TV drama, but in our familiarity with it, we lose sight of the devastation. A woman is is exploited. A conspiracy is hatched. A commander's integrity is compromised. A man is killed. A baby dies and a family is ruined, all because of David and his sin. And when he came face to face with what he had done, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote a prayer of godly repentance that serves as a model for us when we sin. Now, repentance is all over the Bible. It's part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's the first words we see from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So in order to be saved, Jesus calls people to repentance, but it's not just a one-time thing. We see Jesus calling on churches to repent in Revelation 3. This is the the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Repentance is our godly response to the sin in our lives, and it's ongoing. And this psalm gives us an outline of what Christian repentance should look like. And the structure of the psalm is actually pretty straightforward. We're going to see five different aspects of David's repentance. We'll see his confession, his forgiveness, restoration, testimony, and praise. And with that, let's pick it back up. Let's read again verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Watch me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So right from the beginning, we see David confessing the seriousness of his sin. Now, this is an important point for all of us, because within each one of us is this internal defense attorney. And at the moment we do something wrong, at the moment we sense some inkling of sin, they they hurry to our defense to distract, to minimize, and to excuse all with the purpose of, of convincing ourselves that our sin is not that big of a deal. But David does none of it here. In verse 3, he says he knows his sin and it is ever before him. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, he's feeling this nagging guilt of what he had done. It was in the back of his mind haunting him. It was tormenting his conscience. And I think if we're honest, all of us here knows what that feels like. There's something that you've done that produced guilt that just haunted you. And there's one of the ways that we try to deal with this is distraction. 
We distract ourselves with work or events. We fill our times with social media and YouTube videos. We fill the silence with with podcasts and television. Anything that we can do to drown out the noise of our conscience. Because if we sit in silence, that guilt that we're running from will catch up. It's not the only thing. David knew that the ultimate judge he needed to answer to was God. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this raises an obvious question, because I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah. What about Bathsheba? What about their family? David sinned against all of these people. And it sounds like David is just ignoring all of the sin he committed against all of these people and saying, I've only sinned against God and God alone. I don't think that's what's happening here. David, in the context of poetry, is using hyperbole to remind us that as egregious as sin is against humans, it's ultimately God whom we've offended. Because every sin is against God. And we see this with Joseph, right? Potiphar's wife goes to try to, to, to sleep with him, and he says, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? That means that every angry, impatient thought that I have on the freeway is against God. Every time I see something in someone else that I want and I covet, it's against God. Every time I snap with anger and frustration at my kids, it's ultimately against God. David is elevating all of his sin to a cosmic level by seeing it all as treason against God. It teaches us that even the little sins are serious. And we see that there's no room for the minimization of our sin in our confession. That's why the next thing he says is this, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Although David is asking for mercy, he's pleading for mercy. He recognized that if God chose to withhold that mercy, he would be totally justified in doing so. David is agreeing with God that he is guilty, and that's a key element of confession. It's not just saying what you did. It's agreeing that what you did is wrong. There's one more reality that stirs up David's desire for forgiveness. Verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David traces all of his sin back to the moment he was conceived and says that, that, that from the first moment of his existence, sin was present within him. And this is important because a lot of times when we sin, we try to shift the blame to something or someone else. I wouldn't yell at my kids if they were more obedient. I'd be a better husband if my wife respected me where I'd be more honest at work if there wasn't so much pressure. David could have easily done all of that. He wouldn't have committed adultery if Bathsheba wasn't bathing on the roof. He wouldn't have had to cover up his sin if Uriah would have went home to his wife like he was told to. We excuse our actions by attributing them to something outside of ourselves. I did that. I said that. I went there because something or someone pushed me in that direction. The problem The problem's not in me, it's around me. And with that perspective, when we sin, it gets really easy to say, that's not really who I am. That was just a freak accident. I can't be blamed for what I did when I was hungry or tired or stressed. That wasn't me. That's not a reflection of who I am. And so by that logic, David was a good guy that just occasionally murdered people. That doesn't make any sense. And David doesn't fall for it. 
He says his actions are coming from somewhere deep within him. He murdered someone because he was a murderer. It wasn't an anomaly. It was who he was. It were several moments where lust and deceit and selfishness and pride in his heart was put on full display. Our sin comes from us. We lie because there's deceit in our hearts. We lust because there's adultery in our hearts. We snap in anger because there's impatience in our hearts. Those moments aren't exceptions. They're us. The sins we commit are the tip of the iceberg of the sinfulness that's inside of us. And that's why David says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is telling us where God's attention is. David's actions are horrible. They They were atrocious. But he says God's gaze probed deeper. The word for secret heart here is also used to describe something that was covered up or something that was hidden. The idea being that God is focusing his his attention on the part of David that he hid from everyone around him. Those urges, those feelings or emotions or thoughts that David hid away. This is what God is pressing into. Those areas of sin in our lives that we're uncomfortable acknowledging even exist. So we hide them away. This morning, God might be pressing into something you have covered, something that you have hidden, something that you're trying to push away. Maybe he's pointing at it right now and saying, that right there, I want truth there. I want that uncovered and I want that drawn out. That's tough. It's uncomfortable dealing with ourselves. But there's hope. And it's in the first verse in the psalm. Psalms are poetry. And with poetry, form is function. So there's intent not just in what's being said, but in how it's being said. And we see this right from the beginning in verse 1. After the introduction of the psalm, we have a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of thoughts is stated and then repeated in reverse order. I'll show you. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, this structure of thought is all throughout the Psalms, and it helps us understand what the psalmist is saying. Because the main point of the chiasm is right in the middle. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David's hope of forgiveness is rested on the character of God, namely his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. The word here for steadfast can also be read as loyal or unfailing. Abundant mercy is highlighting the immense quantity or amount of mercy that God has towards his people. This is the understanding of God that precedes his honest confession. We have to know that for his people, God doesn't fail and his mercy doesn't end. And we'll we'll say we know that, but in practice, we act like God's love for me is unfailing only when I'm doing everything right. His love for me is steadfast when I'm not struggling with sin. When I'm doing good. God's love for me is loyal as long as I deserve it. But to hear it that way defeats the whole purpose it's there. 
See, our love tends to be fickle. We love things and then we don't. That's the whole basis for trends. I flip through my yearbook and I cringe, right? Back in high school, we loved our velour tracksuits until we didn't. I was a loner, but put me in some beyond baggy jeans from Miller's Outpost and I felt like a king. The same goes for Livestrong bracelets and stuffed crust pizza and the black eyed peas. We loved all of these things until we didn't. We are a fickle people with wavering affections. And thank God that he's not like us. Because in this psalm, David is confessing the worst thing that he will ever do. And it was followed by an even worse string of sins to cover it up. He hadn't been a good husband. He hadn't been a good king. He hadn't been a good leader. He's been horrible at all of those things, yet he's convinced that despite his failures, God's love for him hadn't changed. And that's the basis for his appeal. His, his love is steadfast. It doesn't change on how well you're doing at the moment. It doesn't fade when you blow it. This is the confidence we need that helps us understand and unload our dirt on him. This is what we need to understand in order to be painfully honest in confession. David is dealing with his sin before God with total honesty and transparency. He holds absolutely nothing back, and it's rooted in the confidence that once God has set his affection on you, he will not change his mind. He knew what he was getting into when he saved you. He knew you. And his steadfast love tells us that he's not going to change his mind now. The steadfast love and tender mercy of God invites us to come to him. So if there's something in your life that you feel is so bad or so ugly or so dark that you can't imagine bringing it to God in confession, I'll just remind you of something Tim Keller said. You are more sinful than you know, yet still more love than you can ever imagine. So maybe it's time just to lay it down. Let's stop here for a minute because when it comes to confession, yes, we should definitely confess our sins to God. But Ephesians 4 tells us that we should be forgiving one another as well, which implies that when we sin against someone, we go to them and confess. That means we should be confessing to others. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. This tells us that we should be a people that confess our sins to each other. Sin loses its power when it's pulled out into the light. I have guys around me that know everything about me. And there's freedom in that. There's freedom in grabbing a friend and saying, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's where I'm, what I'm, where I'm failing. Here's what I need help with. Can you pray for me? The Bible says there's power in the action. The act alone, the Bible tells us that healing begins to take place. In the next few verses, we see David return to his original question in verses 1 and 2. Now that he's confessed, we see forgiveness. Let's read it in verses 7 and 9. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Verse 7 begins with a series, begins a series of petitions that runs all the way to verse 12. We see the first thing David asks for is to purge him with hyssop. Hyssop is a common shrub that's referenced several times in the Bible. And almost everywhere it's mentioned, it's included in the act of ceremonial cleansing. In Leviticus 14, we see instructions for a person that has been healed of leprosy. The priest is supposed to go outside the camp to inspect the person, make sacrifice, and dip a hyssop branch in the blood and sprinkle it on the person who has been healed. Then pronounce that person clean. This is the image that David is referring to in verse 7. In his mind, way before Jesus in the cross, he understands that because of his sin, a sacrifice needs to be made, a sacrifice that God will provide and a sacrifice that God will apply. And as a result of that sacrifice, God will turn to David and say, clean. And that's the pronouncement that David wants to hear. That's why he says, let me hear joy and gladness. This is the basis for David's cleansing and forgiveness. It's a sacrifice. And David didn't know the details of this, but we do. We know that it was Jesus that gave himself for our sins. It was Jesus that was broken so that we can be healed. And it's because of Jesus that God the Father turns, turns to us. And no matter how deep the sin is, no matter how dark that stain is, sprinkles his blood and says, you're clean. You're forgiven, you're perfect, you're spotless, you're mine. Now, what's amazing to me, that David can spend six verses tracing the depth and the seriousness of his sin, and in one verse in faith, reverse it all and says, despite all of this, if God purges him, he will be clean. There's confidence and faith in what he's asking. He had total confidence that despite the immensity of his sin, God's mercy was more and God could make him clean. The sacrifice of Jesus is so complete, so sufficient, so thorough that we can take heart in the fact that no trace of forgiven sin is left behind. It's spotless. God does nothing halfway including your cleansing. So what's implied with, the verse, with verse 8 where David asked God to hide his face from his sin? Everywhere in the, else in the Bible, God turning away his face is a bad thing. It implies a break in fellowship or relationship. It means being cut off or cast out. So when God turns his face away from our sin, he is out of his own volition, actively choosing not to count our sins against us and to treat us as if they don't exist at all. That's the completeness of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And as incredible as it is, it is insufficient. Because David is going to build on his confession and forgiveness and ask for restoration. Let's look at it, verses 10 through 12. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, if you look closely at the second halves of each of these verses, you'll see a pattern. There's a reference to a spirit and the word me. Look at it. Renew, renew a right spirit within me. 
Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The emphasis of these verses is action by God within. And this is the next step of David's repentance. And it's in the form of a series of requests for God to do something within him. And it starts with asking God to create in him a clean heart. This word for create is a rare verb used in the scriptures. And it's the same word used of creation in Genesis 1. David is asking God to step into the madness and the darkness and the chaos in his heart and create an order and peace and goodness that only he can create. New desires, new affections, new priorities. Then he asks, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Now in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon people to aid them for a specific purpose. David would have been familiar with what happened to Saul. The Spirit of God came upon him, but then left because of Saul's disobedience. So it seems that David is recalling that and asking for that not to happen to him. He's saying that he needs God's empowering presence by his spirit to, to remain with him, to enable him to do the things that God, is, God has called him to do. Lastly, he asked God for, to restore the joy of his salvation and sustain him by a willing spirit. He'd lost the joy of his own deliverance. And he wants it back because he he's going to need it to continue on. So he's asking for, for transformation, for strength, and for diligence. He's asking for these things because David knows he can't fix himself. I can't fix me, and you can't fix you. We need help to be changed. We need God's strength, and we need him to sustain us. And this shows us that true repentance is not satisfied with only forgiveness. True repentance wants to be changed. It says, I don't just... I don't just want to have the, same, the stain of the sin removed. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't commit the sin at all. And here's where I think we tend to dilute repentance. Often it's explained as us turning away from sin. And people point out that it's a military term and it means to do an about face. And that's, that's all true, but it's incomplete. I have a son that is particularly stubborn. And there are times when he's in places where he shouldn't be, and he refuses to do things that he's told. So I have to go to him, and I have to grab him by the shoulders. I have to turn him around. I have to push him in the direction that I want him to go, and I have to hold his hand as he goes. So to think, to think of turning away from your sin and repentance, that's only me deciding sin is bad and Jesus is good, empties repentance of its power. God is just as involved in your turning away from sin as he is in your cleansing and forgiveness. And that's what David is praying for. He's praying for God to grab his shoulders and turn him into the right direction with new heart, with affections and desires. He wants God to empower him and to push him along the way of obedience. And he wants God's spirit to sustain him and hold his hand as he walks along the right path. Repentance is a catalyst for change in the life of Christians. Those things that we see in ourselves that make us cringe don't have to stay that way. There's power in Christ to change them, to fix them, to mend what's broken, and to restore what's been lost. You don't have to stay how you are. That inward change leads to some very outward expressions. Let's read them. Verses 13 through 15. 
He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What David is saying here is simple. The forgiveness and restoration he would receive would be a testimony to the people around him. Our God saves, and his grace covers even the worst sins. David thought his life would be an example of it. Every sinner saved, every sin forgiven, it's a story about the grace and mercy and love of God. Our lives sing about the goodness of our God, and that's what David says will draw people in. In our repentance, we aren't only forgiven, we aren't only restored, we are useful. And I'm saying that because this text is showing us that after even great sin, we aren't rendered useless. We aren't ruined. There are things that God can use. There's still good that can come from it. And there's a prerequisite, though. And stated in these verses, we have to teach, we have to sing, and our mouths have to declare. That means that we don't hide what God has done for us. Our culture needs to be one that acknowledges our sin together confesses our sin to each other, and rejoice out loud in sins forgiven. This pushes against our culture. It's obsessed with appearance. This is everywhere, uh, but I think it's especially prevalent here in Orange County. There's an, an obsession with presentation. I grew up in the Inland Empire, and my neighborhood now in Orange County is great, but it's weird. Every house has a white picket fence, a perfect lawn, and a weather vane, and it's totally useless. I don't, I don't walk outside in the morning with my robe, take a look at my weather vane so that it can tell me whether or not there's a squall moving in from the east. This isn't Little House on the Prairie. The weather vane is pointless, but it doesn't matter because it's not about function, it's about appearance. See, we fixate on how things appear, and this text is telling us to drop the facade. Our preoccupation with how we look and how our lives appear to the people around us creates an illusion that we are people that don't need the grace of God. Let's be honest. We are all a mess. But isn't that part of what makes God glorious? Because he steps into the mess and comes to people like, like us, forgives us, transforms us, and over time makes us less and less messy. Let's be honest about our sin. Let's be wise, but let's talk about the things that we struggle with so that we can celebrate in the evidences of God's grace. It says that this draws people in because it shows that there's grace for them too. This doesn't work if we're silent about our sin and our need for grace. The prayer of repentance prays that our sin would ultimately be used by God to bring more people to himself. Now, David, David could have stopped right there. This whole thing could have ended right there and I could have thrown up a good news statement on the screen and wrapped things up. But, but, but that's not where he stops. He moves on to talk about sacrifice. Let's look at it in verse 16 through 19. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. 
build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says something here that might be a little surprising. He says, God doesn't delight in sacrifice. And it's surprising because God commands sacrifices. The book of Leviticus is, is full of them. But I think David has a couple things in his mind when he says this. First, according to the law of Moses, there was no sacrifice for intentional sins. There was no sacrifice that David could even make. And even if there was a sacrifice that could be made, God wouldn't delight in it because he was more concerned with David's heart. That's why he says that the only thing he could do is offer God his broken, remorseful, sad, grieved spirit and contrite heart. He says the only thing God is looking for us when we sin is for us to grieve it and feel remorse. And then he said that that personal reality is an applied to the entire nation of Israel. God will not delight in sacrifices until the nation was restored. And it shows us that God doesn't want outward actions. He wanted inward brokenness, contrition, and repentance. Now, as we, as we start to wrap up, we need to pause here. Because I think when there's something in our lives that we know we need to address, or there's some sin that we, we know needs to be dealt with, one of our, our strategies is to throw ourselves into some sort of Christian activity. Right? There's some ongoing struggle that I don't want to deal with, I don't want to confess, I don't want to face, so I'm going to try and relieve myself of this guilt by, by, by serving or by getting involved in Bible study or by starting some new spiritual discipline. I'm going to refuse to deal with this thing that God is pressing in on me, and instead I'm going to throw myself into something that might relieve me of this nagging guilt and shame. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to run 100 miles an hour in the other direction. This text says that that doesn't work. And this is all over the Bible. In Amos 5, God is speaking to his people as if as they've given themselves over to sin and injustice. And he says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melodies of your harps. I will not listen. God is saying that he's done entertaining their outward religion until they deal with what's in their heart. And the only way to relieve this, the only way to address this is through confession, repentance, and restoration. Look at the ways David describes how he felt while he hid his sin. He says it was ever before him, it was torturing him. He says he couldn't hear joy and gladness, he was numb. He says his bones were broken, he was in pain. He said he'd lost the joy of salvation. His, he was saved, but his soul was sour. In my own life, my experience in church tells me that there are people in this room feeling all of those things hiding their sin and feeling horrible because of it. Trying to deal with their sin by distracting themselves with noise and busyness and, and excuses. And I don't want to 
I don't want to generalize things. I think there can be various reasons for Christians to feel depressed or apathetic. Reasons can be physical, emotional, mental. But this psalm shows us the reality that a, ris- a reason you might feel miserable is because there's something in your life that needs to be confessed and dealt with, and God has his finger on it. And if that's you, honest confession and repentance is the way out. As bad as we are, as bad as the things we've done are, they're not bad enough to overshadow our Savior. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus knows how to deal gently with both the wayward and the ignorant. He deals gently with those who have accidentally stumbled into sin and those who willingly walked into it. Isaiah tells us, that, uh, tells us of Jesus that, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That means that he has the power and the strength to save and restore while gently putting us back together again. I'm saying all this because I honestly can't find a reason why we'd want to carry the burden of our sin ourselves. So this is our chance to let him into those dark things that you've hidden away because there's forgiveness and joy and freedom on the other side. This brings us to our good news for this morning. Jesus paid the price for our sin, so when we repent, we can enjoy the freedom of confession, the joy of forgiveness, and the power of restoration. And as we wrap up, I I, I just want to give you some time to just just reflect on those things. I just want to give you a chance to just feel those things in in your life where God might be putting his finger, things that that God might be pressing into. So let's just take a moment. Let's Let's just close our eyes and let's just bow our heads and just allow God to press into the things inside of us that need to be confessed and repented. And while you do that, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read Psalm 32 over you. So go ahead and close your eyes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they should not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or will not stay with you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, when we come to you, Father. We we know when we know that there are things in us that are evil, that are wicked, things that we've hidden, Father, we know that you know them and you see them. In our desperate attempts to hide them, Father, we know that they are 
plain and visible to you. So Father, I pray first that we feel the, for the sorrow, the seriousness of, of our sin. Pray that we'd feel the, the stinging pain of the things that we've done. I pray, Father, that it wouldn't stop there. I pray that that, that would just create in us a desperation for cleansing, a desperation for forgiveness, a, a desperation for pardon. And that in light of all the things that we've done, we just fly to our Savior, knowing that his, his sacrifice was complete and his cleansing is perfect. And that in you, we have the hope for restoration. In you, we have the hope for transformation. In you, we have the hope for change that you are more than willing, that you are more than able to do us all are rejoicing over the fact that sinners have returned to you. Pray these things in your son's name.